You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I think from early childhood I've been rather fascinated by death. I've always been aware of the frigidity of life and how short it is. So I think if I were writing a so-called straight novel, I can't imagine that death wouldn't come into it somewhere. Acclaimed British mystery writer P.D. James today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. For decades, one of the most popular contemporary British mystery authors was P.D. James. In a style reminiscent in some ways of Agatha Christie, P.D. James brought to life the mysteries solved by her fictional detective Adam Dalgleish. She named him after a teacher at Cambridge High School. Book after book, her reputation and popularity grew until finally in 1991, P.D. James was named a life peer in Britain's House of Lords. She was thereafter known as Baroness James of Holland Park. Now, I interviewed her many times over the years about her various Dalgleish mysteries. And then in 2000, I talked with her about her book, A Time to Be in Earnest, which was as autobiographical as she was going to get at that point. So here now, from 2000, P.D. James. I was beginning to realize how much I'd forgotten about my life. And I've never written a diary, so I will at least record one year in my life, from my 77th to my 78th birthday, and I'll use the entries, as it were, rather like hooks, to hook on to memories of the past. So we have um, an almost complete diary, but not complete, um, and a partial autobiography. What a testament it is to your remarkable life that one year in your life, even even interspersed with those recollections of the past, yes. is far more colorful, more rich, and multi-layered than 10 or 20 years in most people's lives. Well, <laughs> it did happen, um, built me a, a very busy year, um, because it was a year I published my last Dalgleish novel, it was a year I did an overseas tour, and there various other things happened. It was the year um, Princess of Wales was killed, um, and I gave a certain number of lectures, did quite a lot of charity work. It was a full year. Hmm. You do seem to have quite a quite a full plate. <laughs> I do have somewhat of a full plate for someone within almost weeks of her 80th birthday, I must say. And My it, children sometimes complain that it's time I took life gently. I wish I knew how. <laughs> well, actually, there's quite a quite a fair number of readers in many countries around the world who are glad you don't. But that's, yes. <laughs> you know, Dick Francis, whom you mentioned very affectionately in your book yes. a couple of times, yes. keeps returning year after year, many times to this very studio, each time insisting, oh, no, I think this will be my last. Yes, Dick's <laughs> always saying that. He's always saying that. But, you know, regularly he does, of course, what I couldn't possibly do. He produces a book a year and produces it very, very quickly. I think he starts about the 1st of January and he delivers it in time for a summer publication. It's quite remarkable. But I think many readers of this book, and I love this book, I have to tell you. Oh, I'm so glad you do, Bill. Many yes. readers will find take, take great comfort in what you tell us near the end, in, in which you say that, you, yes, you will continue to write. <laughs> as long as I feel I can write well, I'll continue. I suppose, in a way, there's so much in this book about writing the mystery and about my writing life that it could have been sort of subtitled The Making of a Writer, couldn't it? Because that's what it's about, really. You have revealed so many little tricks of the trade, as it were, and so many, yes. so many glimpses you've pulled back the curtain to allow us to see the regions that were never privy to, to us <laughs> before. <laughs> this, was, it, was it as much fun to write this book as it is for me to read this book? Well, um, 
Who's to know? I'm delighted you did find it fun to read. I think in some ways a little more traumatic than the the murder mysteries are because, you know, I was revisiting the past and some of the past, of course, was painful, although I haven't been very explicit about that and I've dealt with it quite tactfully. Um, And I think just keeping up with the diary, that's why it's a bit incomplete in a very busy year. was certainly a little difficult at times but I'm very glad I've done it and I'm delighted that it's had such a very positive response You have very frankly told us in this book what most people will not acknowledge in theirs and that Mm -hmm. is that autobiography is largely an assembled fiction Oh, I think it can be I don't mean that people who write autobiographies are necessarily um, telling untruths but um, when one looks back... uh, Memory is capricious. It's difficult to remember with complete clarity sometimes. And inevitably, we select what we write, don't we? I mean, if you write an autobiography, you select what you want to put down. So you are, in a sense, presenting um, the best face you can to the world. And I think often people who write full autobiographies and they say how full and frank they are, um, well, even that is slightly fictitious, isn't it? You know, <laughs> there it is. I think the, the edges of the truth tend to blur sometimes. I think the edges of the truth tend to blur sometimes. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm assuming that the, your 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 great skills as a fiction writer, as a novelist, as a as a as a, uh, a writer of character and plot and setting, comes to bear when you write nonfiction as well, especially when you turn that spotlight on yourself. Yes, I suppose to an extent, but it is a very very different craft, I must say. Um, and I've enjoyed doing it. I'm delighted I've done it. I'm thrilled that people are enjoying reading it. But um, I'm getting back to what I think I was meant to do, basically, of course, uh, which is the uh, crime fiction with a new Dalgleish, which is now nearly finished. But I'll never regret writing this. I think it was right to put these things on record. Um, and it's, um, it's something for my children grandchildren and god willing great grandchildren and great great grandchildren to read (laughs) not only that but for scholars of your books of whom there are legion Uh, you said something early on in this book that i found fascinating you said you couldn't imagine writing a book in which there was no mention of death yes that's um that's absolutely true I think from early childhood I've been rather fascinated by death. I've always realized its inevitability. and I've always been aware of the fragility of life and how short it is. And, of course, as one gets older, one realizes more and more. So I think if I were writing a so-called straight novel, and I must say, Bill, I hate that distinction, you know, between serious literary fiction and crime novel. I think it's totally false. But if I were writing one which was not a mystery, I can't imagine that death wouldn't come into it somewhere because it is just a part of life. And uh, I guess it makes a, a mystery uh, a logical genre in which to go then because <laughs> the entire genre is built around You death. can be certain whatever <laughs> you're going to get in that book, you are going to get a death. Yes, indeed. And usually an extremely unpleasant one. The, the more unpleasant, the better, according to some yeah. writers uh, modern day. I, I take it that some modern writers, though, uh, maybe take it a little bit too far for your taste. Yes, I don't tend to read those books, so I'm not, you know, really competent to talk about them, but I do gather that some really have become extremely violent. Um, 
I'm much more interested in character, in motive, in human beings' interaction with other, with each other, with the harm that a police investigation from for murder can do even to the innocent, with the setting, uh, and with the subtleties of the plot, than I am in just titillating either with sexual violence or indeed any other kind of violence. You do talk about going back and rereading your first book, yes, and and realizing how straightforward and how how very very. Oh, absolutely. It was really quite in the tradition of Agatha Christie. You know, it really was. I mean, um, it's amazing how many of my readers liked that first book. Um, and, of course, I have an affection for it because it was the first book. But I think at the end, Douglas even gets the suspects together, doesn't he, and propound exactly what happened, thing he would never do now, and which I don't think, on the whole, um, uh, uh, real-life t- detectives tend to do. But that's one of the points you also make in the book is that you you often tell writers you say to to read read voraciously and read not yes. not not only to to certainly not to imitate but certainly to find out what writing is. I can easily imagine legions of writers today writing in the model of a book that might sound like a P.D. James novel. Yes, well, I'm so often asked for advice on writing by people who you know who want to be um, want to be novelists. And that's part of the advice I give, that they should read widely. Because the other advice is to increase vocabulary, because words are the tools we use, and words are the tools you use in your profession as well, of course. And the more we can use with confidence, the better we can do our job. Um, and I usually say you must must write. You learn to write by writing. You don't learn to write by talking about it or thinking about it, or even by reading books about it. And um, also, of course, to go through life with all your senses open to embrace experience because nothing that happens to a writer is ever lost. After this short break, the shocking news that P.D. James got in a letter from the Prime Minister. Now back to my 2000 interview with British mystery writer P.D. James. It would have been difficult to try to maintain a diary of this depth over a period of many years. Oh, I think, well, it would have been impossible, but I realise that. I don't think I'm a natural diary writer anyway, and most of my professional life, apart from the writing, has been spent, you know, in writing reports, drafting letters. And by the time I get home at night, the last <laughs> thing I want is to get out the diary and record the dull events of the day. So um, I'm not a natural diary um, writer, and I, think, I don't think I could possibly have kept it up. But we all love to read somebody else's diary, oh, don't we? Yes, indeed, I do. I love diaries. I love biography. I love autobiography. And, um, you know, I'd be quite lost for some, some of the famous diaries, but um, no, I don't, think it's, uh, it's not, I don't think it's my genre. You, you do mention at one point somebody had sent you an old diary that oh, made yes. the, with the penciled entries, yes. including the, the chilling entry. You turned the page and there's an mm. entry, Ethel hung herself. Yes, that was extraordinary. Most <laughs> extraordinary. I don't, I don't know why I was sent that. It was, it was very strange. But it's, yes. out, it's out of little nuggets like that. And this is another yes. point you make in the book. It's out of little nuggets like that that the skilled writer knows, oh, there's, there might be something there. that you know. The, yes. the, who knows what, what input is going to enter your mind on any, on any given day that might turn itself into a storyline. Yes, and of course it might lie dormant in the mind for decades mm-hmm. before the mind sort of conveniently resurrects it because it's appropriate to the book one is writing. <laughs> you are a member of the House of Lords. Yes, yes. What, what is, uh, maybe I should ask at the outset, what's to become of the House of Lords? 
Well, it's been partly reformed by this government, which means that we only have 91 hereditary peers left instead of several hundred. Uh, they are extremely useful members of the House, and I think government realised if it cast them all out, the House would just collapse. So we have 91 hereditary peers, Dukes, Earls and barons who are there by right of heredity. Then it's going to be further reformed, because this is just the first stage, but of course I think it's going to take a long time, because the basic problem is simply this, that it's argued that if it is part of the government of the country, it should be elected in a democratic country. But, of course, if it is elected, it will have very considerable power, equal power with the House of Commons. And that would be extremely disagreeable to the Prime Minister and the House of Commons of the day. So I think at the moment we're rather locked and it's likely, I think, this so-called temporary house is likely to be in existence for quite a long time. <laughs> well, it's been around for several centuries in its present form. or Well, um, of course, it's already been reformed once because um, when I was a child, and in fact until my adult life, it consisted only of hereditary peers um, who were there simply by virtue of the fact that they were part of the aristocracy of the country. Then we had the introduction of life peers, like myself. The Queen made, made us, as it were, life peers for our lives only. And now, of course, um, we are uh, saying goodbye to all but 91 of the hereditaries. Mm. What was going through your mind when you first got the letter offering you a, a, a life peer? Well, sort of amazement. Um, I can remember the day very accurately because it was quite a heavy post. And I um, it got it rather early at the door, and I thought I'd take it down to the kitchen and have some coffee and tackle it, you know. Got out the paper over and started getting through all these letters, a lot of bills, a lot of dull letters. And then this rather impressive-looking envelope. And it was from the Prime Minister, and it, it said, Dear Phyllis, I have it in mind to recommend the Queen. And I thought, oh, he's going to opt my OBE and make it into a CBE, which is the next one up. That's, that's rather nice of him. And then it says, uh, to create you a life peer of the United Kingdom. I was absolutely amazed. And the letter said you must keep it totally secret until it's announced. So... Uh, this, I think, was in November, late November, and it was in the January New Year's honours list, so I had to keep it uh, from the children. <laughs> over Christmas, no less. Over Christmas, absolutely, <laughs> over Christmas, no less. When will you find time to write, then? You must be so busy with affairs of state. Well, I'm not as busy, <laughs> not as so busy with affairs of state as I ought to be, but that is the brutal fact of it. I, um, I, you know, I don't have to attend. I do try to attend for all important debates. Um, the House doesn't begin sitting until half past two. Prayers are said at half past two. We start when. Sometimes we sit very late at night, so I do have the mornings. But indeed, it is a puzzle. It is a problem. It is a problem. It really is. And I must also say, one of the one of the nugget that jumped out at me from your book, after 15 years of sitting on this side of the microphone interrogating people, it was it was a useful uh, passage to see in your book, the, the reference to your book tour from a couple of years ago, yes. when you sat for three press interviews in a row and felt very sympathetic, you said, to, pol uh, to police prisoners after having undergone three hours of interrogation. Well, uh, yes, uh, it was longer ago than that, Bill, actually. It wasn't with my present publisher. It was mm. some years ago, and I think, I'm not sure, they say, I think it was in San Francisco. And it was just arranged so that, you know, from 9 to 10, I had one journalist. From 10 to 11, I had another. From 11 to 12, I had another. And the thing with radio interviews, and also with television radios, which makes them very enjoyable, is that you are really cooperating with another human being in the program. You always have some give and take. But, of course, at this time, what happened was these horrible little recording machines. And what I got was not give and take between me and the interviewer, but 
but a kind of interrogation. And when you'd had the same questions asked by three different people for three hours, at the end of it, I did understand that there was a police interrogation. I'd probably plead guilty whether I was or wasn't at the end of it. So after that, I, I said, you know, to my then publisher, look, um, intersperse the press with television or radio um, so that I don't have these long hours of just being interrogated. <laughs> I don't think anybody much likes that. I would be very bad if the police tried to interrogate me. I can see, I think, no time I'd be in deep, dead trouble, probably arrested, because I think I would respond very badly to it. You'd be confessing to things you had never even thought of. Well, I might not do that, but I would make it plain that I didn't like being asked or didn't being asked all these questions. <laughs> well, by the time I reached had reached the last page, it sounds to me as though you feel like you've had a very blessed life. I do. Yes, I I have. I mean, I've had great difficulties and great sadnesses and many times great fear but here I am um, nearly 80 blessed thank God with, with good health at present children I love friends and above all a talent which I enjoy exercising um, and I'm warmed by the extraordinary enthusiasm and kindness and loyalty of my fans especially in this country where they're particularly warm-hearted and that's a great encouragement to a writer so um, I am I think a very fortunate woman. P.D. James wrote four more Adam Dalgleish novels after this interview, the last coming in 2008. And Baroness James of Holland Park died in 2014 at the age of 94. And you can find easy Amazon links to P.D. James books at our website, heardeverything.com. You can also find my interview with the venerable American mystery writer Mary Higgins Clark. I think a suspense book should be like being on the roller coaster. You know you're going to get scared. You're paying to get scared. And my interview with the creator of Spencer, Robert B. Parker. It was a period there where it was very sophisticated to discover me and to make a point that I was much better than anyone realized. And now it is very sophisticated to discover that I'm nowhere near as good as everyone said I was. You can find our entire archive of past episodes at heardeverything.com. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who called themselves the accidental activist for LGBTQ rights, my 1996 interview with Newt Gingrich's sister, Candace Gingrich. I am a blood relative of the man who is the, the head of the Republican Revolution, who has ushered in this new brand of conservatism that you believe in. Therefore, quit lying to people. Gays come from all kinds of American families, and you can't stereotype us. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.